So this morning we're continuing with our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew, and it's entitled The Glory of God in the Face of Christ. We see something of God all around us in the beauty of sunsets and flowers and mountains and streams. But in Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us that supremely the glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. So that when we are looking at Jesus, we are looking at God. This morning we're going to change our focus slightly and instead of looking directly at Jesus, we're going to look at life in his kingdom. You'll remember that last week we had a look at how Jesus began his public ministry by declaring, repent for the kingdom of God is near. It was and is a solemn warning that one day the king will appear and set up his kingdom universally and eternally. He will destroy all evil. And this is in fact bad news because by nature you and I are rebels against God and so we deserve to be destroyed. But we also saw how Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. It's good news because we discover that in Jesus the king is already here and he's come to take our place to die on a cross for our sins, to take God's wrath upon himself on the cross, so that when his kingdom finally does appear in full and in glory, we can experience it not as wrath and judgment, but as justice and peace and joy. We also saw how we experience a measure in little communities of men and women who've accepted Jesus as their king and who've come under his rule and reign. We saw how Jesus called a little community of disciples around him who would form a new community that would be ruled not by the standards and the principles of this world, but by the rules and values of this future kingdom. And now in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus describes what life in his new community is supposed to look like. These chapters are famously known as the Sermon on the Mount, but really they're a sermon about discipleship. In verse 1, Matthew tells us, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Jesus is teaching his disciples. Uh, By the end of the sermon, Matthew will tell us that the crowds are amazed at Jesus' teaching. So the crowd is there. Jesus' invitation is open to all. But the crowd are onlookers, and they overhear Jesus teaching his disciples. Uh, In this sermon, which takes up three chapters in Matthew's gospel, Jesus explains to his disciples and to us what he means when he says to us, come follow me. This is what it looks like to live under the rule and the reign of Jesus as king in community together. So in Matthew chapter 4, you've got Jesus's command, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. In Matthew chapters 5 to 7, we have this description of what life looks like under the reign of King Jesus. 
But then the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 are the hinge in between. They bring those two sections together. Jesus describes how we enter into his kingdom and what life looks like under his rule and reign. Let's have a look. Matthew 5 uh, from verse 2 through to verse 12. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. So in this passage, the Lord Jesus gives eight characteristics of those who enter and live under his reign and rule. And just to say that these characteristics, all of these characteristics are meant to characterize our lives. It's not as if Jesus is saying, well, some of my disciples are meek and some of them are peacemakers. All of these are meant to characterize Jesus' disciples. And while the world, by its standards and values, may consider these men and women to be losers and wimps, Jesus says that these men and women are fortunate and their lives are to be envied. They experience wholeness and joy right now in this life, and their reward will be great in God's kingdom. They are truly blessed. Let's have a look at these characteristics. First, those who enter and then remain under the reign of Jesus are those who are poor in spirit. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, being poor in spirit doesn't refer to our character, that we are poor-spirited, that we lack courage or determination. Rather, it refers to our spiritual standing before God. Uh, to be physically poor means to have little or nothing, to be bankrupt, to be needy. Likewise, to be spiritually poor means to be spiritually needy, bankrupt, having nothing before God and recognizing that fact. You see, most of us feel that we have things in our lives that make us presentable to God. There are things that we have done or said that we can point to and say to God, God, you should be, accept me because of these things. I've told you before about the story of a man who appeared before St. Peter at the pearly gates. And Peter looked through his list and said to him, that's odd, I can't see your name. But have you done anything worthwhile in your life? And the man replied, well, yes. Once I came across a motorbike gang who were teasing a young woman. And so I went up to the leader, I smacked him on the head, I pushed over his bike, I pulled out his nose ring and I said, you leave her alone, punk, or you'll answer to me. 
St. Peter was impressed, and he asked, when did this happen? And the man replied, oh, about three minutes ago. All of us have a list of things we think should allow us into God's presence. But being poor in spirit means recognizing that before a holy God, I've got nothing to offer at all. What can I give to someone who has created and made me? I recognize that actually even my very best deeds are tainted with pride and self-righteousness. But later on in his ministry, Jesus would use a story from real life. In Luke chapter 18, he tells his disciples about two men who went to the temple to pray. The one was a Pharisee, one of the most religious leaders of that time, and the other was a tax collector, one of the lowest and hated classes of that time because they helped the Roman occupying forces. And Jesus said the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like others, Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. This should commend me before you. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. We enter into God's kingdom when we recognize that we've got nothing whatsoever to commend ourselves to God. You see, in all the other religions and philosophies, you take your good life and you offer it to God. It's only in Christianity that God takes Jesus' perfect life and offers it to us. But we will never accept God's free gift of salvation if we're holding on to things that we think should make us acceptable to him. Jesus says, blessed are those who know their need of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Second, those who enter and remain under the reign of Jesus are those who mourn. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus isn't referring to general feelings of sadness or bereavement, although there certainly are promises in God's word that God will comfort those who grieve. No, this verse continues the theme of the last verse, that it's not simply enough to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy and our sinfulness before God, but we have to mourn over it. Indeed, when we stand before a holy God and acknowledge who we really are, we have no other choice. We recognize our sinfulness and we feel something about it. We mourn, we grieve. It's the appropriate response to Jesus' command, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And we acknowledge, as the Anglican prayer book puts it, we confess that we've sinned against you through our own fault in thought, word, and deed, in what we've left undone. We mourn over our sin and we mourn over the sin of the world. We grieve over those who turn away from God. It's interesting to see how many times in the Bible men like Ezekiel and Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah wept over the sins of others. In fact, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I tell you now even with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. But you know, as we mourn over the sin of the world, we also acknowledge our own culpability, that so much of what we complain about in the world is within us. 
So many of the world's problems are perpetuated by our own actions and attitudes and our support of a system that benefits us and oppresses others. And so we weep. We mourn over our sin and we grieve over the sin and evil in the world. And when we mourn, we're in a position to be comforted by God himself who says to us, see, your sin is taken away and your guilt atoned for. Third, those who enter and remain under the reign of Jesus are those who are meek. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word meek is used so infrequently in our English language, it's probably in danger of dropping out altogether. It's quite an unpopular word as well. You don't get the meek Morphin Power Rangers or meek mouse. It's the mighty Morphin Power Rangers, a mighty mouse. At school sports days, you don't sing, we are Trojans, meek, meek Trojans. It's we are Trojans, mighty, mighty Trojans. None of us wants to be called meek. But meekness doesn't mean weakness. The word meek was actually used of a stallion that had been broken in and was trained and was now ready to ride into battle. That's not weakness, it's strength, but strength under control. And probably the greatest example of true meekness is found in our Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't consider equality with God something to be held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant. You see his strength under control at his trial, at his crucifixion, as men and women ridicule him, as they falsely accuse him and he remains silent, as he hangs on the cross and people laugh at him and say, come down if you're the Messiah. Imagine if he had and wiped them out in his anger. But no, he's meek. And he asks us to be meek too, which is linked to our being poor in spirit, that when I recognize that I'm a sinner before God, when I recognize all that he's forgiven me, I'm far less likely to stand on my own rights before others, insist on my own way, push my own agenda. One writer puts it like this, he says, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The person who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. And this makes him gentle, humble, sensitive, patient in all his dealings with others. As one writer has put it, meekness means waking up in the morning and thinking to yourself, isn't it astonishing? I've been forgiven by God and I am loved by him. And then transmitting that into the way I live with other people too. Fourthly, those who enter and remain under the reign of Jesus are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled so as, as I said earlier, these verses form part of what we call Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you know anything at all about this sermon, you will know that it sets a standard for righteousness that's far above any other ethical paradigm or system that the world has ever seen. As we've seen, it's not a set of commandments that we need to keep in order to be acceptable to God. 
Rather, it's a vision for our community life together. And that's very important because people look at the Sermon on the Mount and they think, well, if I obey this, then I'm acceptable to God. No, it's once we've been accepted by God that we form this little community and this is what we're supposed to look like. But even so, that vision is terrifying and overwhelming. For example, Jesus says it's not enough not to murder, you mustn't get angry with anyone. It's not enough not to commit adultery, don't lust after others. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It's overwhelming. Who is equal to such a life? But the interesting thing is that while they may be terrified, those who enter and remain in the kingdom of Jesus are those who long for this kind of righteousness. That when I read it, not only does it overwhelm me, but deep within me I'm thinking, yes, I want more of this in my life. Once we've tasted God's righteousness, we want more. Just to say that righteousness isn't a desire to obey a whole lot of rules. And there's quite an important parallel at the end of this passage in verses 10 and 11. Where in verse 10, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And in verse 11, he says, blessed are you when people persecute you because of me. In other words, pursuing righteousness is equal to pursuing Jesus, hungering after him and his righteousness. It's not a hunger to tick all the boxes and to get all of the rules right. It's a hungering for God himself. As the psalmist prays in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. It's a hunger and thirst that God promises to satisfy because, in fact, he's the only one that can fill that hunger and thirst. Fifth, those who enter and remain under the reign of Jesus are those who are merciful. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Later on in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus told the story about a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And the first servant who came in owed the king the equivalent of 1.4 million rand. And this servant falls on his knees before the king and says, be patient with me and I'll pay you back everything, which was a joke because this man's income was about 100 rand a month. It would have taken him three lifetimes to pay back everything. And so the king, seeing that there was no way the man would ever be able to repay him, had mercy on him and canceled the debt altogether. The servant went outside the palace and saw one of his fellow servants who owed him about 50 rand. And he grabbed him, began to choke him and said, pay back what you owe me. And the fellow servant said, be patient with me, I'll pay it back as soon as I can. But the servant wouldn't listen. He had the man thrown into debtor's jail until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw this, they went off and told the king. The king called in the servant and said to him, you wicked servant, I've canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And when we've received God's mercy, when we've really understood how much he has freely forgiven us, it makes it a lot easier for us to forgive others around us the little things that they have done against us. And if I do or if I am rather a person who is unforgiving and reluctant to forgive others and keeps a memory of all of the wrong things that people have done to me, 
then I have to ask myself, have I really understood the huge debt that God in Christ has freely forgiven me? When we understand our own bankruptcy, we look on any sin and we can say to ourselves, you know, but for the grace of God, I, I would be in that mess. And so we become merciful. Being merciful also includes having compassion on those who are poor and needy because we recognize that fundamentally we too are poor and needy. Number six, those who enter and remain under the reign of Jesus are those who are pure in heart. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. It's not those who are outwardly religious, not those who do good deeds or have a superficial spirituality, but those who have pure hearts. They aim to live out their lives before an audience of one, before God and not other people. When they do that, it gives them an incredible freedom because they don't care what other people think. They only care about what God thinks. And so David can pray in Psalm 51, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Seventh, those who enter and remain the under the reign of Jesus are peacemakers. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian who opposed Adolf Hitler when many of his fellow pastors were going along with the Nazi program. Uh, he was imprisoned in a concentration camp and he was hanged just a few days before that camp was liberated by the Allies. Uh, Bonhoeffer knew something of the cost of true peacemaking. At one stage in his life he wrote these words, Jesus' disciples keep the peace by choosing to endure suffering themselves rather than inflicted on others. They maintain fellowship where others would break it off. They renounce all self-assertion and quietly suffer in the face of hatred and wrong. In so doing, they overcome evil with good and establish the peace of God in a world of war and hate. But nowhere will that peace be more manifest than when they meet the wicked in peace and are ready to suffer at their hands. The peacemakers will carry the cross with their Lord, for it was on the cross that peace was made. Peacemaking is God's work. God reconciles men and women back to himself, and he reconciles us back to one another. And when we engage in urging others to be reconciled to God, and when we engage in urging people to be reconciled with one another, we take on the character of our Father. That's what it means when it says they'll be called the sons of God. Being a son of someone meant that you took on their character. So seven characteristics of those who enter and remain under the reign of Jesus. In his commentary on this passage, uh, Pastor John Stott gives a good summary of these verses. So let's summarize. He says the Beatitudes paint a comprehensive portrait of a Christian disciple. We see him first alone on his knees before God, acknowledging his spiritual poverty and mourning over it. This makes him meek or gentle in all his relationships, since honesty compels him to allow others to think of him what before God he confesses himself to be. 
Yet he's far from acquiescing in his sinfulness, for he hungers and thirsts after righteousness, longing to grow in grace and in goodness. We see him next with others out in the human community. His relationship with God doesn't cause him to withdraw from society, nor is he insulated from the world's pain. On the contrary, he's in the thick of it, showing mercy to those who are battered by adversity and sin. He's transparently sincere in all his dealings and seeks to play a constructive role as a peacemaker. But there is an eighth characteristic of those who enter and remain under the reign of King Jesus. What is the result of our being poor in spirit and of mourning, of being meek, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, of being merciful, of being pure in heart, of being a peacemaker? What is the result? Verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus tells us that when we live like citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we'll be persecuted because our whole way of life is such a threat to the system. No one wants to be told that they are spiritually bankrupt and in need of a savior. Accepting Jesus as king means we have to accept, uh, reject rather, all of the other kings and lords that vie for our attention. If we are seeking to be like Jesus, then we will experience what Jesus experienced. Somebody who was totally pure, somebody who completely fulfilled the Father's will, who was gracious and merciful and brought healing wherever he went. Jesus told us in John 15, a servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in fact everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I said to you a couple of weeks ago that anyone who offers you a Christianity without tears is not giving you good money. It's counterfeit. Anyone who suggests that you can live on a higher plane where you're free from trials and temptations and suffering and opposition is not giving you the real thing. Because Christianity, true Christianity, is a battle. And if our lives are going completely smoothly and happily without any opposition, we should ask ourselves whether we're truly following Jesus' path at all. When we follow Jesus' way of righteousness, we'll face opposition. Not because we're objectionable or horrible, hopefully, but simply because we're seeking to be like him. He was someone who was persecuted. But as we close, let me just mention a second possible response that we may get as well. It comes a few verses later in verses 14 and 16 where Jesus says this, You all together are the light of the world, and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. As a community, as a community that is different, we're to allow the light of these eight uh, characteristics to shine through us. 
as a Christian community, the Pinelands Baptist Church, and particularly for us as the classic congregation, we're to be a city on a hill so that people may see our good deeds, glorify our Father in heaven. We saw last week that as the community of the King, we anticipate the consummation of his kingdom in our life together. And while there will be many who will reject God's kingdom, there will be those who are attracted to it and who will enter into life because of our life together. This is a life that is blessed. So the question to us this morning is, will we enter and will we remain under the reign of King Jesus today?